Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. It's really lovely to be with you. It feels like a little while since I've been over in Hastings. And uh, you must help me today. You must make sure when I finish that I remember to go to Bexhill. Because last night I dreamt that I finished preaching. And I was enjoying having a cup of tea, you know, catching up with people. And so I had this awful realisation, I should be in Bexhill preaching. Uh, and then couldn't find my car. So it was very stressful. So please do, if I'm hanging around at the end, send me to Bexhill. Um, so today we are starting a new preach series. A new preach series called The Gospel, God's Power for Salvation. Over the next uh, eight or nine weeks, I think it is, we're going to be looking together at the first four chapters of Romans, wrestling with it. What does it tell us about the gospel and how does it help us as we think about our whole kind of year of mission? And today we start with the first half of Romans 1, where we find that the gospel is the key theme at the heart of the introduction to this letter, actually at the heart of the whole letter. And the passage we're looking at today finishes with a key statement. And it's a key statement which makes to any of us who are followers of Jesus a really big challenge. Paul says right at the end of this in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he's telling us that's why he wants to preach the gospel in Rome and in other places. That's why he's given up his whole life since meeting Jesus to do that. It's because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And so the obvious challenge that this text gives to us if we're followers of Jesus is, are we ashamed of the gospel? There are many, many things that will hold us back as we think about this year of mission and telling people about Jesus. But one of the key ones is if we're ashamed of the gospel, we will never be missional. We will never be keen to tell people about Jesus. But this series is going to help us see why we shouldn't and why we needn't be ashamed of the gospel. It's going to help motivate us and equip us for mission. If you've been with us over the last few months, you'll know that over the next 12 months, this academic year, our kind of big focus, our vision focus, is about mission. Our desire is that each one of us would grow to become more missional. We'd be quicker to tell other people about Jesus. We'd all take a few small steps in line with how God has made us to share the good news about what Jesus has done. It might be that you're going to start talking to your neighbours more, just making a bit of time to connect with them. It might be actually you're going to get a bit better at telling people what God has done in your life recently. So they get to look in and see what's it actually like to have a living relationship with Jesus. And we're hoping and praying we're going to see people saved by God and added into his kingdom, added into the church family. And Romans is a great place for us to start in this year of mission because it's a missional letter. Like most of the New Testament, actually, it's written in the context of and for the purpose of mission. Romans is written by Paul, the apostle. So Paul wasn't one of the guys who was with Jesus when Jesus was on earth, but he had this incredible encounter with the risen Jesus. And he became a Christian and he was appointed by Jesus at that moment to be someone who took the good news of what he had done to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And he's writing to Christians who are in Rome, right at the very heart of the big empire of the day. And we don't know a lot about the Christians in Rome and the church in Rome, It's quite possible that people who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts 2 became Christians there and went back to Rome and planted the church. We know there were people from Rome in Jerusalem at that time, so that's likely what happened. And it seems that at the point that Paul's writing this letter, the church are meeting across the city in lots of different house churches. And Paul's writing probably somewhere around 57 AD, so it's about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And it's getting near to the end of Paul's life. So a lot of the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, he's already written by this point. 
And it's helpful just to pause and ask, why does Paul write this letter? Knowing why something is written helps us to understand what it's saying. If we know its purpose, it helps to give us some guidelines of understanding what it's actually saying. And there seem to be two things that Paul is doing in Romans. One of the things he's doing is that he's been traveling around, preaching the gospel and planting churches in the eastern Mediterranean. So what we kind of now know is Turkey and Greece. But now he wants to go to the other side of the Roman Empire, across to the west, to places like Spain, where the gospel hasn't yet been preached. And so his intention, as he writes, he's probably in Greece, his intention is to go to Jerusalem and then to go to Spain to preach the gospel. But in the middle of those two places is Rome. And he wants to go there as a kind of stopping point on his journey. And he's hoping that they'll help him financially and in other ways to get across to Spain. So he's writing to introduce himself to this church. So this is a missional letter. The very reason this letter is written is to help Paul on mission. It also seems, the other thing that's going on in Rome, there seem to be some sort of division in the church, some sort of disputes, particularly between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And one of the things that Paul is doing in this letter is to show them clearly the gospel which unites people across any dividing line that might be there. And so he writes a letter about the gospel to achieve those two purposes and starts with this bold statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But before we unpack that and dive in, let me just recommend to you two books, which if you want to dive deeper into Romans across this series, will help you to do so. The first one, this is one by Tim Keller, Romans 1 to 7 for you. This is a really excellent, just kind of a guide to Romans, really accessible, easy to read. He just walks you through section by section, what is Paul actually saying and how does it apply to our lives today? We've got copies available at Resources today, so you can have it in your hands today. Get there before someone else does. It's just a really good, easy, helpful read. And the second one is this by John Stott, The Message of Romans. John Stott is just an excellent commentator, died a few years ago, but writes really um, kind of easy-to-read, accessible commentaries. He goes into slightly more detail um, than Keller and goes through section by section. But again, it's just really good on what does this actually mean for us today? How does it help us as followers of Jesus today? We haven't got copies of that today, but you can order it at the resources out in Coffee Box if you want to do so. So, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Which, of course, kind of raises the question for us, well, what actually is the gospel? What is it that he's not ashamed of? And actually, that's one of the very first things Paul talks about in this letter. There's almost this sense of Paul can't hold back. He can't but talk about the gospel. And so even as he introduces himself, within the first few phrases, he's telling us all about the gospel. Let's read what he says in the first six verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to being an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul says that he's an apostle, a man appointed by God to preach the gospel, to plant churches, and he's been set apart, he's been kind of distinguished out, put aside for the gospel of God. The word gospel means good news. 
In the Roman world, it was used to announce the good news of victories. So if someone had won a military victory in a far-off land, a messenger would run to Rome, would announce the gospel, would preach the gospel to the emperor. He was proclaiming to him the good news. In the Old Testament, it's used in the same way. You get times when it's about military victories, when it's about other things of this bringing of good news to people. But it also begins to take on this deeper, more significant, more spiritual sense. If you read through some of the prophets, the mouthpieces of God in the Old Testament, as they bring God's messages to people, they start to talk about the good news of what God is going to do in coming to rescue his people. And so it becomes this, this key word, this exciting word about the expectation that one day somehow God is going to come and God is going to deal with the problems and rescue his people. And that's really important to know because that means the gospel is not just kind of some good wisdom. It's not good advice. It's not a set of rules. It's not an equation. It's not Jesus plus or sin plus Jesus equals forgiveness. The gospel is news. It's an announcement. Listen up. God has done something in history that all people need to know about. And it's the gospel, Paul says, of God. It comes from God. He is its origin. He is its source. And therefore, we don't have any right to change the gospel. We don't take the gospel and kind of change it to fit in with how we are or what we want things to be, things to be or how people are going to like to hear it. We take the gospel given by God, we receive it, and we pass on what we have received. And he also notes it's not new. This wasn't a surprising innovation. It wasn't one day God woke up and thought, I think I've got some good news to do. It was promised, he says, beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. For all of history and eternity past, God had planned what he would do in sending Jesus. And the gospel, Paul tells us, is concerning his son, concerning God's son. The gospel is about Jesus. That means that ultimately it's not about us. It's not about our problems and our wants and our sins even. It's about Jesus. Keller summarizes this in a wonderful way. He says, we never grasp the gospel until we understand that it's not fundamentally a message about our lives, our dreams, or hopes. The gospel speaks about and transforms all of those things, but only because it isn't about us. It is a declaration about God's son, about the man, Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. He is at the heart of what God has done in history. And Paul tells us it's about Jesus, the one who is descended from David according to the flesh. In the Old Testament, David is one of the most important kings. And to, God, uh, to David, God makes some incredible promises. He promises him he'll have a descendant who will rule over an eternal kingdom, who will come and will win the victory and rule over an eternal national uh, worldwide kingdom. And this created this sense of expectation, this sense of waiting, of Jewish people waiting. When's that going to happen? When's this king's coming? When is this eternal kingdom coming? And Paul is saying, Jesus is that the son of David. He is that promised king. But he also says Jesus is the one who was declared or appointed to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He's saying that through the Holy Spirit, at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus is appointed as the son of God in power. And it's important to know he's not saying that this is the point that Jesus becomes the son of God. Jesus doesn't get adopted at that point and becomes son of, the son of God. He's already said the gospel is concerning his son. Jesus in his very being is the son of God for all eternity past. But he becomes son of God 
empower. That's the important bit. The moment of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension is when he takes the place at the right hand of God. Paul tells us elsewhere, Jesus is now ruling and reigning, all things being put under his feet, and he's waiting to the time when all things are put in subjection to him. And at that moment, he will hand over the kingdom of God to God the Father. He's the Son of God in power. This gospel is about Jesus. As Paul puts it, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. And so if that's what the gospel is and what the gospel is about, what about what's the goal of the gospel? I mean, that sounds great, but what's the goal? What's it meant to lead to? Well, Paul explains that his role is as one who preaches the gospel. And he says the purpose of him preaching the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. And gospel is meant to lead to obedience. But this isn't saying it's about earning salvation. He's not saying the gospel is meant to make people try harder and kind of try to be good people in the hope that they'll get something from God. He's saying that the obedience comes from the faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, obedience naturally flows because you get transformed. You don't just get forgiven of the stuff you've done in the past. You get transformed with a new heart. Previously, you're enslaved to sin. You can't but do its bidding. But now you're free. You're a slave to God, a slave to righteousness, free to live his way. There's this heart transformation, life transformation. And also obedience flows from faith because anytime we're being obedient to God, we're doing that because we're saying, I trust, even if I don't feel like it's true, I trust and I have faith that God's way is best for me. I trust what God says in his word that even though I really feel I want to do this thing, God tells me it's not good for me and therefore I'm not going to do it. Obedience flows from a faith, a trust in the goodness of God's ways, the goodness of what God says. And so the goal of the gospel it's actually that people would put their faith in Jesus and would then, as a consequence, live in obedience to him. And that's quite important for us to think about as we think about mission, because one thing that means is if the gospel we're preaching and we're sharing with people doesn't leave people with an expectation that how they live their lives is going to change, there's something missing. We've not got the full understanding of the gospel if there's not an expectation that my life, my way of living is going to change as a result of my trusting in Jesus. That's the goal but what about the kind of ultimate purpose? Taking another step behind that, we see what the goal is, but why bother with that goal? What's the purpose behind that? Jesus says, uh, Paul says, all of this is to bring about the obedience of faith for his name's sake. For Jesus' name's sake. The gospel is about Jesus, but the gospel is also for Jesus. The end purpose of the gospel is that humans like you and I would be restored to a relationship with God where we worship him. Will we give to him the love and the honor, the praise that is due to his name? You know, ultimately, everything God does is designed to bring worship to himself. The sole motivating factor in the heart of God is to do things that bring worship to himself. We might think, well, that kind of sounds a bit big-headed. You have to have a big ego to do everything so that you would be praised and worshipped. And that would be true if it weren't for the fact that God is worthy and deserving of all praise and all honour, and all worship. It's what he rightfully deserves. And Romans 1-4 to will show us that the essence of sin, of rebellion against God, is misdirected worship. It's worshipping created stuff down here rather than worshipping the creator who is worthy of all our praise. And so salvation, being saved through this gospel, this good news, is a restoration to worship of God. That's the ultimate purpose of the gospel. 
And so to be truly missional, to be truly motivated in mission, we need to catch hold of a glimpse of the surpassing worth of God. Of God. Our mission, the motivation should be that God is not worshipped enough. That God deserves more worship. That more people should be worshipping him, living for him, honouring him. Because ultimately, that is the end purpose of the gospel. And the final question we might want to ask about this gospel to get a good understanding of it is, well, who is it for? It's good news, okay, but who is it good news for? Who needs to hear this? And the answer is all people. He says it's this gospel for obedience, for his name's sake, among all the nations. The gospel is good news for all people. Whatever your background, regardless of background, age, sex, class, um, relationship status, life experience, educational level, the gospel is good news for every single person. Every single person needs to hear it. And it's interesting to note that Paul not only points out it's for all the nations, but he also points out the gospel is needed by both non-Christians and Christians. As this passage goes on in verses 8 to 15, he begins to explain why he wants to come to Rome. He talks about that he's going to come to Rome. He's not visited them before, but he wants to encourage them. And he wants to be encouraged by them in this kind of mutual upbuilding to take place. And he says that he wants to come and preach the gospel to them. He talks about wanting to preach the gospel, to reap a harvest, to get the fruit among you, he says to them. Among Christians, as well as, he says, among the rest of the Gentiles, among non-Christians. He wants to preach the gospel to non-Christians. And that's the bit which to us might seem kind of a bit more obvious. Yeah, obviously we think Paul wants non-Christians to hear this good news about the gospel. But he also wants to preach it to Christians. He wants to go to the church in Rome to be with them. And to preach the gospel to them. He says, I'm eager, verse 15, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He wants to go and preach the gospel to people who are already Christians. But that's because he knows that the gospel is central to Christian life. The gospel isn't something you graduate beyond. It's not kind of the starting point that once you've got it, you then go beyond and you go on to other stuff. Keller explains this. He says, the gospel isn't like the first step on a stairway you work up. The gospel... It's like the hub of a wheel. The hub of the wheel is the center point. All the parts connect into it. Everything feeds into it, and it's always there. It holds everything together. Or he says the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. Christian growth and Christian maturity, following Jesus day after day, is about having an ever-growing understanding of the gospel and ever-growing and more thoroughly applying it in our own lives and living it out in its fullness. And the reality is that a huge number of the problems that you and I face in our lives are rooted in a failure to really understand and really apply to our own lives and our own hearts the Gospels. If you're a Christian, you need the Gospel. Every day, every moment of every day, you need to be a preacher of the Gospel, preaching continually the Gospel to yourself. And one of the things this series is going to do is to help us expand our, our view of our understanding of the Gospel. Help us to understand it more thoroughly. Help us to apply it in our own lives, to live it out more deeply. So that's what Paul means when he says the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This gospel is the good news, God's good news of what he has done in history. It's the gospel which is about Jesus. Jesus is at the very heart of it. When we talk about sharing the gospel, when we talk about mission, we mean we're pointing people to Jesus, always bringing them back to him 
Because this gospel, this good news is about him. The goal of it is that we might be people who live obediently to him. Not because we're trying hard, but because we're trusting in him. And we've been transformed by the power of the gospel. And all of that is so that Jesus might be worshipped. Yes, through our songs and our prayers, but just through how we live, how we approach life, that he might be glorified, he might receive the glory that's due to his name. And it's for everyone. It's vital for every single human being who lives on this earth to hear, to know, to apply the gospel, whether they're not Christians or whether they are already Christians, all of us need the gospel. There is nothing more important than knowing and believing and living out this gospel of God. So let me encourage you to use this season when we're going through these chapters to devote yourself to going deeper into the gospel, to wrestling with the beauty of it, wrestling with the depths of it, and to letting it seep into your life, living your life from it. And that will naturally flow into mission. The more we realize how good this news is, the more we will find it difficult to keep it to ourselves, the more it will naturally flow out. And others will see the gospel in effect in your life. They'll see the difference the gospel makes to you and that will open ways for you to be missional. So that's what the gospel is. But then what about, what does Paul tell us in these opening verses about the gospel and mission? We've said this is a, a missional letter. That's why Paul is writing this letter. And verses 14 through to 17 is where Paul kind of really picks up this theme of mission and how he is going to preach the gospel. Let's just read what he says. I'm under obligation, he says, or I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, And also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says he feels this sense of obligation to preach the gospel. He literally kind of says, he says, I'm a debtor to these people. And he doesn't mean he's a debtor in the sense of they've given him something and he needs to pay them back. He's a debtor in the sense of he's been given something and been giving it to give to other people. And so until he's discharged that debt, until he's giving it to them, he's in debt. It's like if someone gave me a gift to give to you, until I had given it to you, I would be in your debt. I would be a debtor. And so he feels this this sense of urgency weighing upon him. I've got to pass on this good news. And that's true of us too. If we're followers of Jesus here today, we've been entrusted with the gospel. It's been given to us to pass on to other people. It's good news which is meant to be shared and we are in the debt of other people until we've discharged that duty and we have shared that good news. Not that we do that to earn something, not that we do that to try and get some favour from God, but we do it because we recognise the supreme treasure of what we've been given and we long for other people to know it and experience it as well. And Paul says it's that sense of debt which makes him eager to preach the gospel when he gets to Rome. And the verses 16 and 17, Paul explains to us why is it he's so eager to preach the gospel. And these verses really are the kind of point from which the whole rest of the letter flows. Definitely up to chapter 4, but reasonably really up to 8, 12, or maybe even 16. The whole of the letter flows from what Paul is about to say, which explains why he's eager to share the gospel. This is a letter about mission, about why mission exists. He says, the reason I'm eager to preach the gospel 
is I am not ashamed of the gospel. And of course, even by saying that, it kind of implies that he might have been ashamed about sharing the gospel, which kind of makes sense in the context he's in. When he's proclaiming the gospel, he's saying, oh, this guy who the Romans executed was actually God's promised deliverer. This guy who the Romans executed is actually now the true Lord over all. Not your emperor, not Caesar. He's the true Lord over all. It would have sounded pretty crazy to people. It was easy for Paul to feel ashamed of the gospel. And maybe it's easy for us too. Maybe we find it easy to be fearful of what people will think about us if we try to tell them about Jesus. Or we explain the gospel or they hear that we're followers of Jesus. We kind of think, well, people are going to think I'm crazy. Or they're going to think I'm old-fashioned. Or they're going to expect that I'm a really judgmental person. Or that I'm really uneducated because I don't understand that all of that's being kind of disproved. We live in fear of people's opinions of us. And therefore we become ashamed of the gospel. Being ashamed of the gospel will kill mission. We will never be missional so long as we are ashamed of the gospel. And that was a temptation for Paul, just as it is for us. As to how does he overcome that? How does he battle against this temptation? How do he become confident and unashamed? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power. It's not just words. It's not just clever ideas. It's not just a nice story. It's power. It's God's power to do something. And it's power, he says, for salvation. Salvation is about rescue. It's about release. It's about being spared in the face of great harm and great danger. And Paul would explain as these chapters go on. Later in chapter 1, he explained that this salvation is salvation from the wrath of God, from the just and fair punishment that we deserve because of our sins that God pours out on sin. Paul explains that this wrath of God is poured out in the present upon people who don't follow Jesus by the fact that God gives them over. He lets them continue in the unfulfilling life of sin. And Paul tells us there will come a day when every person stands before the judgment seat of God and God acts as judge, and the wrath of God, his just and fair punishment of sin, will be poured out. But the gospel is about salvation, rescue, release, being spared from the danger that is facing us. The gospel is God's power to be spared, to be rescued from the wrath of God that you and I rightfully deserve to receive. And therefore, Paul says he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed because he knows what it does. Imagine if you had the answer to stop something terrible happening. You have the answer to stop lots of harm happening, lots of death taking place. No matter how embarrassing that thing might be, no matter how shameful it might have felt, you would do it because you would know the power that it would have to do good. And Paul says it's this power for everyone who believes. He gives the example of Jew and Gentile because that was the division in the church at the time. But it's the power for everyone, for old and young, for black and white, for rich and poor, for male and female, single and married, this is power to save everyone and anyone who believes in Jesus, who calls on his name. Paul is utterly unashamed of the gospel because he's grasped what the gospel is. He's grasped what the gospel does. He knows the real power that is in this gospel. And if we haven't done that, if we haven't truly, deeply grasped what the gospel is, what the gospel does, the power that it has, the fact that we need it and it comes to meet our deepest need we will be liable to be ashamed of the gospel. Because on paper, it looks like foolishness. 
Paul says this when he writes to the Corinthians. To the world, this looks like foolishness. This guy who was executed by the Romans is the guy who can rescue us from the wrath of God. But he says to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, it is the wisdom of God. That's why he's unashamed of this gospel. And then he takes another step. He says, I'm unashamed because it's the power of God for salvation. And then he tells us how it is the power of God for salvation. And really that's what's going to be expanded in the coming chapters. How is it that this gospel of God has power to save people from the wrath of God? He explains it's for, in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God and righteousness is a great example of what I call Christian lingo. Words that Christians use all the time. No one outside of the church has a clue what they mean. Half the time, we don't really know what they mean, but we continue to use them because we know them in the Bible and we know we should. And it's a really complex thing, righteousness, but it's a concept which is central to these chapters of Romans. And as we go across these weeks, we'll be getting a deeper, better understanding of what does righteousness mean? What does it mean to be justified? But here he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's kind of uncovered, displayed in this gospel, in the gospel of God. Righteousness is about rightness, basically. You can kind of hear the link in the word there. Righteousness is about doing what's right, doing everything you should do and doing nothing that you should not do. And here, as he talks about the gospel revealing God's righteousness, there are probably three layers of meaning, three things that Paul is saying are revealed in this gospel. The righteousness of God is partly about God's character. It's a statement that in the gospel, we see that God acts as he should. He does everything he should do. He does nothing that he should not do. It shows us in the gospel, we see that God acts as one who is just, one who is fair, And that's actually not as obvious as it might seem. You might think, well, yeah, obviously God is just and fair. But actually in the gospel, the promise is that God forgives people who are sinners. That God rescues people from the wrath that they rightly deserve, which on its own is an unjust thing. When wrong is done, punishment should come. But Paul's telling us the gospel reveals the righteousness of God because the gospel is the good news of how God can still be just. He can still be righteous. He can still do what he should. And yet, he can forgive sinners. He's going to explain to us when we get to chapter 3 how Jesus comes as the middle term. Jesus and his death and his resurrection is the reason why it's not unfair, it's not unjust for God to, uh, to forgive sinners like you and me. The righteousness shows us, the gospel shows us the righteousness, the rightness of what God does. It's about God's character. It's also about God's action. In the Old Testament, righteousness and salvation, saving people, are often kind of placed in parallel. There's just one example from Isaiah 51, where God says, My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. He's comparing, joining together, righteousness and salvation. Righteousness can be used as a way of talking about God's actions to save people. God's uh, interventions in history to save people. So when Paul says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, he's saying in the gospel, we see God's saving actions. We see how God comes, he gets involved in human history to save men and women. It's about the saving activity. It's about that power to save, power for salvation. So righteousness is God's character, but it's also God's activity. But then also the righteousness of God is God's gift. Because we've talked about God being righteous, But we also need to be righteous. 
If we're going to stand before God, if we're going to be able to be in relationship with him, if we're going to be able to spend eternity with him, if we're going to be able to not experience the wrath of God, we need to be righteous. We need to have righteousness. We need to have done everything that we should do and nothing that we should not have done. And obviously that's a problem because none of us have done everything that we should do and nothing that we should not do. But in the gospel, the righteousness of God as a gift is revealed. Paul will talk about the fact that this righteousness comes and it is given to those who are unrighteous. And what Jesus does on the cross means that we can take hold of his righteousness, his perfection. That though we are utterly unrighteous, utterly unperfect, he gives us a gift of perfection. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel in that God gives righteousness to us so that we can be saved. That power of salvation is saved, spared from the wrath of God so we can stand before him. We can be in relationship with him. This is the power of salvation. God's righteousness is his character. God's righteousness is his action to save. And God's righteousness is his gift given to those who are unrighteous so that we can stand before him with confidence. And the revelation of God's righteousness in those ways is the key theme in the first three chapters of the letter. So time and time again, we'll see Paul drawing this out, giving us a deeper explanation of that. But then also he talks about the importance of faith. The final chapter we'll look at, chapter 4, Paul will bring in the importance of faith. And that's what he does right at the end of this verse 17. He says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. He's basically saying it's all about faith. He's repeating it for emphasis. He says righteousness of God taking hold of by faith, by trust in him. And he quotes from the Old Testament to support this. From one of the minor prophets to a small book near the end of the Old Testament called Habakkuk where he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Although translation stuff's quite complex, maybe we're better saying, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. He's saying the one who is righteous, who's declared not guilty, who's made perfect before God by faith, by trusting in God's promise, will live. Now and for all of eternity. The gospel is God's power for salvation, because through it there's an invitation An invitation to trust in Jesus, to trust in the promise of forgiveness, trust in the promise of new life. And through that, sinful people are made righteous. Those who are righteous will live. The gospel is God's power for salvation. And that's why Paul is unashamed of it and unashamed to proclaim it. Can I invite the band to head back up, please? So the gospel is God's good news about Jesus. It leads people to obedience to him and all of that is so that he might be worshipped. He might be glorified. He might receive the praise that is due to his name. And so Paul desperately wants to proclaim it wherever he goes. He wants every person to hear this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so the challenge to us today, and I felt this challenge so strongly as I've worked on this this week, is are we ashamed of the gospel? We're called, we're invited, we're given the opportunity to share this good news with other people, but we will never do that so long as we feel ashamed of what this good news is. If we want to feel unashamed, we need to get to know it better. Get to know it, and get to know it, not just kind of understanding it in your head, but experiencing it, living it out in our lives, seeing the power of the gospel in our own lives, that we go, I want other people to know this power of God for salvation. Let me encourage you again, over this series, use this time to commit yourself to doing that. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you today and come back, be with us, explore this with us, see what this power of God for salvation is. 
See what the good news of God to you is. We're going to respond today by taking opportunity to set our minds and our hearts on this gospel and what God has done for us. We're going to worship together in a song. And Paul will lead us as we take the bread and the wine to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And just use this as your own opportunity to respond to him. To say, God, I want to be unashamed. I want to get to know it more. If you're not a follower of Jesus and today you're thinking, I need to respond to this good news. You can do that in your heart even as we worship. And then come and talk to someone at the end just so we can help you and pray with you. Do you want to stand as we engage with God? I'm going to pray and I'll hand to the band. Father God, we thank you so much for your wonderful gospel. Thank you that your gospel is the power for salvation to anyone who believes. Thank you that your gospel reveals to us your perfect, wonderful righteousness. We are so grateful for the gospel and it's the power in our lives. And we say we want to know it better and we want to live it out more thoroughly in our own lives. And also we want to be those who are taking it to other people. Lord God, would you make us courageously unashamed of the gospel? I pray over these weeks, would you work deep into our heart and experience understanding of the truth of your gospel, its power for salvation, such that we would not be able to keep it within. We'd be eager to tell other people, eager to preach the gospel, as Paul was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. We say, Lord God, please work in our hearts through your words. Please excite us about the gospel. Please let us live in all its freedom and all its goodness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.